0: Thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It continues to be a privilege and an honor and a blessing to preach the word of God to the saints at Durban Memorial Baptist Church. Last week I was speaking with a family here at the church and we were talking about youth camp uh, and taking the youth to, uh, to church camp. And uh, this year we did kind of a short version of youth camp. Uh, it was also partly mission trip uh, and it was great, but we're potentially looking next year at the possibility of going to the kind of more standard week long camp for middle schoolers and high schoolers. We're, we're, we're looking into that uh, here, here soon. But that whole conversation of talking about camp got me thinking about going to camp as a student myself and taking students when I was a youth pastor uh, years ago. And a lot of cool things happened at church camp. I remember having some deep conversations about theological truths that we didn't normally wrestle with when we were at regular youth group. We also had games and excitement that was abounding all these moments that were also interspersed with deep moments of reverence and awe. It was a really cool experience. Our our very own Mark and Ashley, not to put you on the spot, met one another at youth camp uh, uh, years ago, right? That's a pretty cool thing that happened. There. I've seen students come to saving faith at, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've seen students uh, accept or begin the call to vocational ministry through the ministries of youth camp. I've seen a lot of really cool things happen at youth camp. But as I reflect back on my own history with church camp, there is one particular and seemingly consistent outcome that is kind of tough to swallow. That is in this secluded place, this off from the beaten path place. If you go to Baghdad, Kentucky, there ain't no cell service place. This place where the gospel is saturating every moment of the day from the games, to the songs, to the food, to the teaching. Students are so consistently presented with the gospel and caught up in the excitement and hit with the moments of awe that they catch this fire. They're all in for Jesus and everything's like they're walking on the very clouds of heaven. And then they get home no longer surrounded by the consistent teaching every moment of the day, no longer uplifted by the great worship music and the bands that are taking care of that part of the service, no longer accountable to the group sessions that were happening consistently throughout the days, no longer presented with the deep conversations and that flame that seemed so fervent, so real just a few days ago, Flickers away. The student at camp committed to reading through the Bible for the rest of the summer, going to finish it from Genesis to Revelation after a day or two back in reality, leaves the Bible on the shelf for the rest of the summer. The student who showed interest in joining the ministry just a couple weeks before can't find time in the busy schedule to even come to youth group. Well, this is a sad picture Don't get me wrong here, church camp is a wonderful thing, and I've seen great things happen for the glory of God through it. And also, don't think that I'm just picking on the students here. There has been uh, many times where what I'm describing is not limited to youth group or to church camp. In in my time in the church, I've seen it play out in the lives of adults and in the lives of children, even at VBS. There's an expediency to make a big public splash, a, a profession, a quick punch of emotion, and then a withering away. I can think of numerous times in which someone has been baptized and then that's the last time they stop step through the doors of the church for years to come. In these instances, this sad occurrence that I'm describing here, we are seeing something that is explained to us in scripture. These are moments where the church as a church, we and as the pastor, I must ensure that we are discipling young believers, building into young believers, pointing them to Jesus, but we also can't someone pull someone's ear and make them serve Jesus. These are instances or examples of something that Jesus said was going to happen. Look at Matthew chapter 13, before we get into chapter eight a little bit later. Matthew says, or Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, he told them many things in parables saying a sower went out and as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground and they didn't have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But then the sun rose and they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced good and produced grain, some 100 Fold Some 60, some 30. Now there's a whole lot going on in this passage and eventually we'll come back and do a full sermon on this passage. But fortunately for our benefit this morning, later in this chapter, Jesus tells us exactly what this means. Okay, In verses 18 through 23, we read Jesus explaining. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. That is what it was grown, sown along the path. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. But what we've been describing this morning as we talk about that, that occurrence that happens consistently at a youth camp or from a vacation Bible school or even from just regular ministries in the church at times, what we're seeing here is someone who receives the word, who hears the word, immediately receives it with great joy, but it takes no root. When the trials come, when the mundane obstacles of regular life come back, the growth withers away, it has no root, it was false growth. Throughout history, there have been many make an excited, hasty profession of faith with lofty intentions, lofty goals. In this parallel of the sower, Jesus shows us, he knows the fickle and unstable and self-centered nature of humanity. He says, this is gonna happen as we sow the seed of the word this morning. We're going to be walking through in chapter 8, three pictures in the book of uh, Matthew, in chapter 8, that show us the real cost, what it is to have good soil, the real cost, what it takes to really grow, the real cost there is in following Jesus, these pictures are given to us to help us see the difference, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and see the difference between a heart that is good soil, producing much fruit and a heart that is rocky ground, quick to grow, quick to make an emotional response or decision, but withers away when calamity strikes. But let me give you this little bit of encouragement before we even get into the text this morning. As we're talking about this, you might think back to your own history with church camp. I know I, I was thinking of my own. And you might identify with yourself moments or maybe even a lifestyle that is congruent with what we're describing here as the rocky ground. You've seen quick growth in the, pa- in the past. You've been real excited about church for a week or two. Or uh, got back from uh, church camp wanting to go on missions for the rest of your life. And then it didn't work out the way that you thought. Your, your, your fervor died out. Your flame seemed to flicker. We've gone through seasons of withering, if we want to put it in the context of what we've been reading here. Please know that simply being aware of that reality this morning may very well be God tilling the soil in your life, removing those thorns, removing those rocks that were there in the past, preparing your heart to be fertile soil. As you're hearing this this morning, you're saying, man, that was me. That could be God waking you up, giving you that heart, that flesh, that, 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 that heart of fertile soil to receive his word and have deep roots. That could happen even today. Yeah. See and understand it is God who takes away the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. We talked about this on a couple Sunday or Wednesday nights ago in the men's class that it's God who breaks through the blockhead of rock. And gives us ears to hear. And that very well may be what God is doing this morning. Call out to him. Ask him for that today. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, if it's your will, would you break through our hearts of stone today? Give us hearts of flesh. Give us fertile soil to grow deep roots in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be presented with the real cost of following Jesus. Begin with me in verse 18 chapter 8 of the book of Matthew. We'll first look at verses 18 through 20. It says now when Jesus saw a crowd around him he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, "Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go." And Jesus said to him, "Foxes have holes and birds have the air or birds of the air, excuse me, have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head." In verse 18, this is where that coming home from church camp analogy really starts to kick in. If you follow me here, this is where it's taking shape. Think about everything that's happened so far recently in the book of Matthew in this narrative in chapters five through seven. Jesus has been given what's called the best sermon ever given. He gives the Sermon on the Mount, and there he's proclaiming the great demands of righteousness, and that salvation comes through faith and obedience to Christ alone. He he speaks with an authority that is unmatched by any other earthly teacher. No scribe has ever talked the way that he does. Then, as we looked at last week, he backs up what he preaches. He backs up that authority with showing authority over creation. He healed a leper. He healed uh, the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then an unnumbered amount of people come to him that evening, and by the very word of Christ, he heals them and casts out demons. That's what we looked at last week. People are healed, all with just a word From Jesus. I can only imagine the type of excitement that was running around the area at this time. This would have been big news. This would have been a big deal. Uh, Excitement was in the air. This wasn't a regular occurrence. People were astonished. You see that throughout the scripture there, that people were astonished by what Jesus was doing there. But then Jesus sees this crowd around him and he provides an opportunity. To turn his following into followers, okay? Are you tracking with me here? Thus far, the crowd is around Jesus, but it's on their home turf. He's in their neck of the woods, if you would. Here we see Jesus isn't simply interested in having a big crowd around him, interested in the cool stuff that he's doing. He's interested in people following him. It's time to count the cost of what it actually means to follow me. He says, I'm going across the sea. It's time to move past the emotional excitement. It's time to move past the quick spurts of growth. And it's an opportunity to show, do you got roots? The first person we see come up to Jesus is a scribe. Scribes were the scholars of the day. They were experts in the Old Testament, uh, obviously just not called the Old Testament at that time, but they were uh, experts in scripture and society looked up to these people. Think about it like an honorable profession we might see today is like a, a brain surgeon or an astronaut. If someone walked in like that, that's a very lofty position that this person held. Scribes carried with them an air of authority as they walked about wherever they went. And And so for the scribe here to approach Jesus and he addresses him as teacher or as master in other translations there, when he approaches Jesus there and says teacher, it would have been a big deal. The people would know, yo, this community teacher is calling Jesus teacher. This community leader, this, this big guy is saying, Jesus, you're master. That's a big deal. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't overly fawn Over this important person's profession. We're going to kind of go off on a little bit of a rabbit here. But we'll bring it back in. There's a major problem we have in modern Christendom. If you would. We are very quick to promote someone who makes any kind of proclamation of something that sounds like faith. That we promote people before they should receive our commendation. I'll give you two recent examples of this in Kanye West and Chance the Rapper. Put that on your bingo card. You didn't expect to hear that this morning, right? <laughs> Many of you all may not stay up on the hip hop game, but track with me here. When I was a youth minister, I tried to stay current on all the things that were happening uh, in, in pop culture. And both of these rappers in recent-ish years, published what was called Christian albums. And I remember the youth world as a whole being set on fire. Everybody was like, I got to go get the new Yay album, right? Chance the Rapper even did a version of How Great Is Our God, that Chris Tomlin song. He did a version of that at the Grammys live. And it was a big deal. Many in the church were overjoyed. There were grandmas buying Kanye West CDs, (laughs) y'all. But flash forward a few years to today. I am not the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you what is happening in the hearts of either of those individuals. But I can tell you with a cursory view of the headlines surrounding each of the rappers, I don't see fruit. I can also certainly not recommend any of their most recent albums. Certainly not to a grandmother. We are so quick sometimes to get excited over anything that sounds like faith, that we don't give it time to show fruit. In the case of the scribe, Jesus here shows patience. He's not like, oh, I got me a scribe. Come on. He shows patience. He responds to the scribe's zeal with an interesting phrase. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, there's a lot going on in this response of Jesus, but let's first look at how it connects with the overall message of Scripture and even the book of Matthew. Over 80 times in, the, in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of God, being called the Son of Man, is a sign of humility and humiliation. Here, through using flowerly language, Jesus is not exaggerating. He, he had no place to put his head. He had no property ownership. He had no home. His identification as the son of man would also draw readers back to uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'm not going to read that now, but you can make a good note there to check that later. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. There, you see the son of man is to be given dominion, glory, a kingdom for everyone to serve. Now, why would Jesus... Draw the scribe's attention to both his glorification as the son of man and his humiliation as the son of man. Contextually, what we see is the scribe's intention in following Jesus is to get a better earthly privilege than what he already enjoyed by his Cushy social status. He was already at the top of the, uh, the the Jewish list. There, many of the Jews though believed when this Messiah comes, and if this Christ was the Messiah, he seems to be, when that Messiah comes, he's also going to usher in a earthly kingdom. It's going to wipe out those silly Romans who are oppressing us and restore the Jewish people to a place of dominance. And as a scribe, I want to be right there at the top. That was man's expectation. You see that also in the triumphal entry, if you read through the the passion passage there. But uh, that was man's expectation, but it was not God's plan. Jesus was bringing the new covenant. God was bringing salvation to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit was coming to indwell believers. There were wonderful things happening for the glory of God, by the power of God, but they didn't look like what at least this man expected. Jesus is basically telling the scribe following him is going to require you to give up the earthly comforts you have enjoyed so much. The son of man, the very son of man has nowhere to put his head. This man seeking to increase his position would have to give up all of those things. What a shock it would have been for him to hear following Jesus would give up personal honor and glory. The first cost. As we look through the costs of following Jesus that we see in this picture, following Jesus will cost you your pride. It'll cost you your pride. You could make a side note your position. Following Jesus is not about gaining social status, about climbing the ladder. Christian influencers online may have us convinced otherwise. Politicians may try to play it differently. But following Jesus is not something for you to use to gain a social advantage. In fact, following Jesus very well may mean giving up such things. Following Jesus means sincerely praying, Lord, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Not my will be done. Not my kingdom come. Thy will, thy kingdom. We aren't told in scripture here how the scribe responded to this realization. Most of the commentaries I read uh, assume that the scribe walks away like the rich young ruler uh, does later on. If you, I've referred to that story recently, but I, I can't be certain. That's not in the text. I, I don't know how the scribe responds here. However, I am certain that this encounter caused the scribe to count the cost Of what it takes to follow Jesus. Look at the second picture in the next couple of verses. Verses 21 through 22. Another of the disciples said to him. Lord let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him. Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Another disciple here. Another of the disciples here. And note the context here. Disciple refers to someone following Jesus. It isn't an inherent uh, endorsement of the person's faith. It's someone who is in practice showing they want to, in some ways, follow Jesus. But this other disciple walks up to Jesus and he says, Lord, before I follow you, let me first go bury my father. Jesus, the gentle and lowly Jesus you've heard him called, the never offending Jesus that you may have heard of, looks at this man and says, "Mm, follow me. Let the dead bury their own. And from our perspective, if we're not being careful, we might read this here and think, whoa, 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 Jesus, that's kind of mean. You're not going to let this guy go bury his daddy? His dad just died? You won't even let him have a funeral? This is a place where an understanding of Hebrew culture helps us understand the context of what's really going on here. First of all, you need to know in Hebrew society, in the Jewish society, people were to be buried within 24 hours of their death. So when Joseph of Arimathea offers to bury Jesus quickly after his death on the cross, that's an example there of how expeditiously things move at the time of death. You want to get it uh, to happen very, very quickly. So that means in this text, it is extremely unlikely that this guy's dad just died. And then he took a detour to come over here and to listen to Jesus. And then he's going back to bury his dad. So that's not really what's happening Here, in all likelihood, if this man's dad had passed away, he wouldn't have had time to be there listening to Jesus, to try to even follow Jesus that day. So the other cultural note we need to know here is that bury my father in the Middle East, even to this day, is an idiom that's like a a catch a phrase like it's raining cats and dogs or something like that. The phrase bury my father was often used to convey the idea of going to work with your dad until the dad passes away and the child receives the full inheritance. One commentary notes, this phrase is still used today in the Middle East, that, that, that people still use the idea of, let me first go bury my father. That's saying, I got to go work out with dad until, uh, until he passes so I can get my inheritance. Now, this man is... Basically asking Jesus for an indefinite period of time for him to go home and sort out the affairs uh, until things were more convenient. And then he would return and follow Jesus. Depending on the age of his dad, this could have been 10, 15, 20, 30 years of going home to bury my father. He was basically asking Jesus, hey, give me a stamp of approval. Knowing that like I give you an IOU. He's saying Give me this uh, stamp of approval without actually following you. He wanted to go back home and say, yeah, I'm close to Jesus. He knows what I'm doing. I I have some stuff to finish up at home. Then I'll follow him. He might have even said this. Y'all, he knows my heart. Man, if that don't sound like some of us today. Yeah, I like all those hymns and stuff. I'm I'm a Christian. I'll get back to church one day. I'll start living right one day. I just got to get my ducks in a row. Jesus understands. He loves. He'll wait. He knows my heart. What do we see Jesus' response to that kind of sentiment here? He says, don't wait. He says, follow me in the text that's given in the present imperative. That means now follow me right now. Follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. That last part of the phrase is talking about spiritual deadness, all the riches, all the inheritance in the world, all that stuff's going to pass away. All that stuff's going to be gone. Those are dead things for dead people to worry about. Follow me now. The simple paraphrase of what Jesus is saying here. and The cost here is prioritize me. The second cost we see in these pictures is that Jesus following him will cost us our priorities. Jesus calls us to follow him first and foremost. Following Jesus doesn't allow for IOUs and procrastination. What does this mean? It means church. I hope that this is an eye opener, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We got a job to do now. We got work to do now. I love how the right response to the gospel presented by Christ in Mark one fifteen is he, he says, y'all, the time is up in Mark 1 15, I'm giving you the Brad paraphrase that y'all isn't in there in the English translation, but y'all, the time is up. The kingdom of God is here. Repent now. Believe now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the gospel. Repent now. Church, it's high time for us to stop playing games with our sanctification. It's time for us to see the worthiness of Christ to be followed. It's time for us to get on the boat. It's time for we stopped allowing the lusts of the flesh to dictate our decisions more than the word who became flesh. Saying he knows my heart is an excuse to live in the flesh. And to the skeptic among us, it's time to face the truth. There is no hope in just playing church. There's no salvation in trying to be good enough on your own to pull up your bootstraps. Repent and believe in Jesus as king and do so today. Follow him. Leave the dead stuff for the dead and dying world. Come to him who gives life abundant. Follow him. Leave the dead to bury the dead. Following Jesus will cost us our pride, will cost us our priorities. But that's not all. Let's look at the third picture, verses 23 through 27. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the seas. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? If we were to rewind just a little bit, just like the scribe. We're not told what happened to that disciple. All we know is that after having the encounters, Jesus and his followers got on the boat. We saw that right there in verse 23. He got on the boat. An optimistic view would picture the humbled scribe and the revitalized disciple hanging out together on the front of the ship on the deck of the boat. But that's not something we can be certain of. The point of the story here is not how those two responded thus far but rather the cost of following Jesus. Thus far we've seen following Jesus costs us our pride, following Jesus costs us our priorities, and in this final bit of narrative that we're looking at this morning, we see that following Jesus costs us our apprehension. Our apprehension. Let's see how this plays out. Jesus and his disciples get in the boat, they begin traveling to the other side of the sea of Galilee and a major storm arises. Now, I know we have a lot of fishermen in attendance this morning. Uh, Today, you all might have quite a bit of of boating experience, more than myself, I would assume. And so did some of the disciples following Jesus. Many of them were fishermen. Some of them were professionals who spent their lives out on the water. So we need to take it as fact that when these waves were coming, when they were being overwhelmed by the size of the storm, this tells us this ain't just a little sprinkle, (laughs) Notice how it's described here. It's called a great storm. So great the boat is being swamped by the waves. Large waves crashing over the sides of the ship. I think it's safe to say that many of us, most of us, all of us would be terrified in this situation. In the middle of the sea, these great waves crashing over the side of the boat. But that's not the way it is for the fully God, fully human, son of God, son of man, Jesus. Who has found himself a place somewhere on the boat and he's laid down for bed. And his humanity, and the human, uh, on the human side, if you would, even though he's 100% human, Jesus is asleep, tired from the long day of ministry, from ministering before the crowds. And in his divinity, though he's asleep, he's ever in control. The disciples run to Jesus, and what do they say to him? They say, save us. We're dying. Save us. We are going to die. Save us. We are perishing. The disciples run to Jesus filled with doom. Now, I want to pause and share a note from Pastor Warren Wearsby. Let's ask the question. Why are the disciples in the storm? Why are they in this storm? This storm came because they obeyed the Lord, not because like Jonah, they they disobeyed him. They are in the storm because they followed Jesus. They got on the boat. They didn't walk away when they counted the cost. They got on the boat and they were in the storm. Jesus just told them in the Sermon on the Mount that the one who hears his words and follows him is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. When the rains fall and the floods come up and the winds blow, the house on the rock stood Firm, right? This was an opportunity for them to put into practice what they had just heard in a quite literal way. To realize they are following the Lord. But the storms here are too much for them to handle. Their faith wavers, And they say, not just Lord help us, but Lord help us. We are certainly dying.
1: We are at our
0: doom. Their faith is wavering. Jesus gives them a rebuke. He says to them, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? And in this statement, we see that the bigger storm in this picture is not the storm on the seas, though it was very big. The bigger storm in this picture is in the heart of the disciples. Jesus contrasts fear and faith. Why are you so apprehensive? I am here. Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? We see the contrast there, the rub between fear and faith. Jesus gets up. He speaks a word to the storm, to the winds and the seas, just as he had with the centurion's servant and to Peter's mother-in-law and to all those who were brought to him. And all at once, the storm is calmed. When we look at the scene, it's pretty obvious that the disciples showed weak faith. They were fueled by fear and the Lord calls them out appropriately. We don't see a... a, 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 a um, condoning of their wavering there. But we do see something interesting. And all we need to see here is Jesus's response. They go to Jesus. What does Jesus do? He takes them where they are. Weak faith and all. And he doesn't say to them, you want me to do what? You want me to calm that storm? Well, I'm not stopping that storm until you show some real faith. Wake me up again when your faith is stronger. That's not what he says. What a bunch of wimps you are. Got 12 chickens. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say that. He hears their prayer. He stops the seas. He stills the storm. This shows us even little faith is faith still. And Jesus helps us when we come to him. Jesus will save even weak in faith disciples. Jesus knows humanity. He knows the fickleness of our heart. He knows the frailty of our condition. The point that he is teaching the disciples and us through this exposition, through the exposition of the story is our faith, though sometimes clouded by the world, needs to be without fear. In our human condition, we get that wrong. We mess up. Fear slips in. But the object of our faith is always in control. We need not be afraid. When the fears of life sips in, when the winds toss us about and the waves crash over the side of the boat, take our weak faith to the one who is worthy to receive it, to the one who can calm the storm with the word. Take our concerns and our burdens to the Lord. We don't have to have everything figured out, but the one thing we can be confident in is Jesus is Lord. Following Jesus will cost you your pride, Following Jesus will cost you your priorities. Following Jesus will cost you your apprehensions. It's not a cheap price. It is something to count indeed. But it's not complicated either. I think sometimes we make coming to Christ overly complicated. We want to have our ducks in a row. We want to have our lives figured out. We think that we can't be going through a storm in life. What we see today, we're to follow the Lord in the calm on the shore and in the storm, clinging to him with faith, though weak it may be. As we continue to walk through the miracles of Jesus in this series that we're doing, we're going to see and continue to see as we already have why he is Lord. We can see his dominion over the seas. We can see his healings, all the mighty things that he has done. We see his healing power. We see how his sacrifice atones for the sins of all those who believe in him. We can see why the Bible proclaims salvation by grace through faith in Christ. As we conclude this morning and as school is getting back to start this week, I want to provide you with the other W's of salvation, if you would. Who, what, when, where, why, how? We can clearly see why Jesus is worthy to be served. His dominion over all creation, his worthiness, his uh, sacrifice he makes. Let's look at first the who and the what. Look at Acts 16, 31. It says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Who do we believe in? The Lord Jesus. What do we believe? That he is Lord. He's master. He's sovereign over creation. He is the Savior. Scripture proclaims him to be. When, where, how do we do this, Pastor? Mark 1.17. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, 1.17. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I believe I wanted to go another verse from that. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe for the kingdom of God is at hand right now. That follow me is in the present imperative now. Believe in him. Where? Right here. How? By grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Church, if we have faith, may we live in response. May we follow Jesus as Lord. If you're understanding him as Lord today, I would love to talk with you more about that. There is no one else worthy to be served. Jesus is is, Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to present your word, Lord. I pray that it has gone out, accomplished that which you have said it to do and not return into your void, but accomplishes that which you want it to do, Lord, that it is breaking through our hearts of flesh, drawing us to better serve you for your glory, for you are worthy. We thank you for Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again to pay the cost of all the sins of all those who believe in him. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to see the cost of Following Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would see the cost is worth it. That you are worthy to be followed, worthy to be served, and that you would draw us to do so. May we serve you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you rise for this hymn of response? Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.